Well, let's start with some prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can come together this evening. And I ask that you would calm our hearts to hear what you have to say in your word, Lord. Would you speak to us through it and through me? We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Right. What comes to mind when you think of unity? It's kind of a vague term. The first thing that comes to my mind is my favorite soccer team, Manchester United, who has had a pretty rough season. Um, So a moment of silence. But really, what are they unified under? I guess there's a coach that kind of keeps them in check. He, he sort of makes sure that the strikers are striking and, and the defenders are doing their job well. They're united by a jersey, but once they get home from a game, they can just take that off and I guess they don't have to be friends anymore. Or you could think of a little bit of a bigger picture. The states that we live in, they are called the United States of America. But even that, sometimes, it seems like is more of a name than an actual description. So what does unity between the people of God mean? Well, that's what Paul addresses in our passage this evening. And I want to give a little bit of a context of where we are. We aren't just jumping right in here. You guys have had the privilege of listening to Chris preach through Ephesians. And so we have made our way through three chapters, and we are now arriving at chapter four. And that second word on chapter four, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, is a very big therefore. The first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul is explaining what it means to be a new people. He is addressing what it, what it actually means to be a converted Christian. And he goes through all of this explanation of the beauties of the glories of a transformed life in Christ. And then we get to this point, which is a pivot in the book, where he basically starts saying, now you live like this. He starts commanding what a new people is to live like. And so we are looking at the first section of that. If I were to summarize what Paul is saying here in this passage, it would be this, that we are to maintain and attain unity by ministering to one another in truth and love. There's a difference between working together and you are joined together, and Paul tells us both here in this passage. That's what I mean when I say maintain and attain. So the way that this passage is sort of divided up, or or at least the way that we're going to be looking at it tonight, is in four sections. He starts with a command. He gives a foundation for that command, sort of a basis. He gives us the means, and then he gives us a goal. What is the purpose? Firstly, we have the command. Let's look back down at those first three verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So this command, we could say, is to walk worthy, to maintain the unity of the spirit. And this is a big command in Ephesians. Like I said, this therefore sort of 
prefaces this next section of the book. And when he says to walk worthy in a manner worthy to the calling of which you've been called, he's referring to basically what he said in the first three chapters. This calling that you've been called to, he just explained that in depth. And now he's saying that you need to walk worthy because of that. This is the thread for the rest of the book, this walking worthy. But what is that? What does he mean when he says walk worthy? Well, he's referring back to himself. If you flip back just one page to Ephesians chapter 2, by the way, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are maybe the best verses to look at if you want to see the glories of conversion, what it means to be a Christian. Look at that first verse in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air. And then he goes on to explain, but being rich in mercy, God transformed you, saved you by grace. And look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that this walking worthy isn't, isn't something that we do to actually attain uh, sort of the gifts of Christ, the, the glory of conversion. He's saying, God transforms you, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he goes on to give purpose to this with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What if your parent came up to you and said, hey, be a good kid. Loving your sister well, being a, a good uh, you know, daughter to me or a son to me, uh, doing your chores to maintain or eager to maintain the bond of the family. What are they saying? What, what is that, that final part there for? That's the purpose. They're telling you, be a good kid. That's the command. They're telling you some ways how to do it. And then they're telling you why. Eager to maintain the bond of the family. We can look down here at Paul in verse 3. When he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, he's telling them the purpose for which they are supposed to walk worthy. Why? Because you ought to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So what is this unity of the spirit? Well, it's uh, simply our oneness as children bought by the blood of Christ, right? It's not a, a, a jersey like the soccer team that, that they can just take off. It's your very source of life. This unity of the spirit is what is your DNA as a Christian. It's what transforms you. It is what you breathe in and out. You are converted. You are in Christ. That is what it means to be unified in the spirit. It is your source of life. You don't just leave your lungs in a locker and then take them out when you need them. It's something that's in you, right? You require it. And this bond of peace. Well, chapter two, verse 14 tells us that Christ himself is our peace. So we see that as Christians, we are unified together. Uh, We are joined together, not just under some sort of constitution like the United States of America, but we are joined together under Christ as one body. This is, uh, to, to understand this, we really need to understand the great mystery of the Christian life. The fact that you are made perfect and then you are to practice living 
in a Christian way. So I uh, particularly don't watch a lot of TV, and I especially don't watch a lot of reality TV. But for those of you who have ever seen a reality TV show or who have even seen maybe a preview for a reality TV show, uh, it's really interesting. What do they kind of feed off of? They feed off of drama between the people, right? So you think of like, I don't know, keeping up with the Kardashians or something like that. What is the case with these people? They are unified by their blood. They are the same family, right? They are brothers and sisters and and mothers and fathers. They are unified by blood. But what happens? There's divorces. There's, they're throwing things at each other. I mean, they probably like write some of this stuff down and say, do this. It'll make for good TV. But, but we know that like we watch how they, brothers and sisters get in arguments and you're kind of watching. You're like, I know they're family, but man, they don't really act like it. But these last three chapters, Paul has just described the glories of what it means to be a Christian. He has just described what it means to go from death to life, to be a child of wrath, to be born again by grace. And the thing is, is that you all share that. Unified. If you are a Christian, you are unified into this one hope. And so to maintain it, that unity of the spirit is to walk accordingly. Now, we just kind of skipped over verse two, but we're going to go back to it. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul gives us some application himself. He tells us not only what to do and why to do it, but also how to do it. In humility, in gentleness or meekness, patience and forbearance. And all of that in love. You can sum all of that up with the idea that you are just to love one another. Now, humility is a personal struggle of mine, something I really do struggle with, especially when I'm put in areas of leadership. I struggle a lot with humility. But can I just uh, point all of us back to this idea that we share the same Christ who had to come down as a man to die for each of us individually. You are, it is necessary that God would die for you. You are that bad. And so there is no point in coming to youth group and wanting to uh, unify people around yourself when you are that low. We ought to be unified around Christ. And so one one you know, practical thing that I would just urge us to do is to be people who confess often, be people who confess quickly, be understanding of your own sin. Know that everyone around you has that sin issue in their life. Maybe not a particular sin, but generally that sin issue in their life. And so let's be people who are humble and are confessing. And gentleness, uh, Here's the thing. I know that you guys are all really tight, and that's really cool. It's really cool to see how close you guys are. But I also noticed that one thing that can happen with really tight groups of friends is uh, joking gets sometimes a little bit more sarcastic and uh, rough and things like that. Like, and I think that that's, you know, 
yeah, like we're joking and things, but at the same time, guys, I, I really think that being called into a community of gentleness can also mean that maybe we deal more gently with each other um, because I think that that can actually sometimes damage relationships rather than build them up. It's easy to get mean with one another. I know that. I saw you guys playing dodgeball just now. That was... And then uh, patience and forbearance. Patience, this word is often used to describe God's patience with humanity. Think about that. God's patience with humanity. A humanity that is in utter rebellion against him. There's long-suffering. So do you value your convenience over maintaining peace with one another? Or are you quick to get angry? Well, that's just something to kind of think on. But ultimately... um, we are to maintain this oneness that we share in Christ by walking worthy. But, but we want to keep going since we're only in the first three verses. Let's go on to verses four through six. And this is where we kind of see the foundation. So we got that command. You guys got that? We're, to walk worthy, to maintain the unity of the spirit. And we're going to get more into that. That's sort of what we need to understand the rest of this passage because in verses four through six, he gives us a foundation. Let's read. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Did you catch the repeating number there? Two, three, one. So Paul's uh, sort of saying that neglecting this command that, that he just gave us is actually not an option. Why? Because of the one who called you. There's one body, one body, namely the church. There's one spirit. And look at this, right? As he mentions that there's one spirit, he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And he had just said Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's like he can't even get a few sentences down the page without pointing back to his main point. He says, there's one spirit. Just like I told you to maintain that unity of spirit, there's one. There's one spirit. Look at verse five. There's one Lord, that's Jesus. There's one faith, that's in him. And there's one baptism of repentance. Now, this morning, if you were in church, you saw some people getting baptized, some sitting in this room. Were those a baptisms, were, the, were they different types of baptisms or were they the same baptism? They were the same. One baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. You have the same hope. If you are a Christian, you have the same hope to the person to your right and the person to your left. That's what Paul is saying. There isn't two hopes. Some of you might be veering that way. Some of you might be veering this way. You have one shared hope. Imagine a race. Imagine uh, people lined up and I'm talking just a straight shot race, right? 100 meter or whatever, just a sprint straight ahead. There's people lined up, they're getting all set, they're, they're, there's a dude with the gun, right? And he says, on your mark, get set, go, and he shoots the gun. And these people who are all lined up, the first one, 
he starts running over there. And then the guy next to him starts doing back pedals. And then the person next to him starts doing like grapevines to the right. You'd be like, what's going on? That's not what it looks like for Christians though. You guys are co-runners. You have the same goal. You're running after the shared hope in Christ. So I have to ask, what would you say defines the union between you? If you would maybe take your closest group of friends, maybe they're in this room. Maybe we're just talking about this group in general. What defines that union between you? When you tell someone, oh yeah, these are my friends, we all vote conservative. These are my friends, we all like to play Minecraft. These are my friends. We all like, I mean, I will tell you, like when I was in high school, in my earlier years of high school, what I would define me and my friends by are the ones who got on Xbox Live and played Destiny. I played the heck out of Destiny. I had so many hours in that game. Those were my best friends. But what is the main thing that you run towards? What is your main hope in? I'm not saying get rid of hobbies and I'm definitely not saying get rid of unchristian friends, but I am saying that we ought to have one final end main goal. And Paul has based that in our God. He gives us the means. He gives us the means to attain this goal or to, uh, to fulfill this command, I should say, right? So we have the command as to walk worthy, to maintain the unity of the spirit. We have the foundation, the one God of us all. Now we're given the means. We are not just left hanging. He's not like, figure it out. We have the means. Look at verse seven. We're gonna read through 12. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He gives us the means. I'm summarizing those as the finished work of Christ provides the church with diverse strengths. The finished work of Christ provides the church with diverse strengths. Let me explain, because you're kind of like, what? Verse seven, this is important because he shifts gears. He just got done saying one like a thousand times. He said, one, 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 you are one, unified, blah, blah, blah. And then we get to verse seven. What does he say? But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's starting to single us out. And then we need to look at verse eight. Verse eight is kind of baffling because he says, therefore. Now, when usually you see a therefore, it's sort of something that implies something, right? I could say, I love oranges. Therefore, I'm going to go buy a lot of oranges, right? That's something that that goes after it in a way, right? 
But, but Paul just finishes talking about the glories of Christ, and then he says, therefore, and quotes Psalm 68. Now, when we read that, we understand that Psalm 68, specifically Psalm 68, 18, was written with the implications of the future glories of Christ. But it's strange. It's strange to see that. But let's look. What, is it, what does it say? It says in Psalm 68, 18, right here cited, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Well, who's this he? Well, in Psalm 68, it, right before that, it talks about God. And we're, it's clear that this is God. And this is conquering language, right? He, he conquers and he gives gifts to men. We would also expect to see he conquers and he loots and he collects booty from, from what he has conquered. But it says he gives gifts to men. So it's already a little bit abnormal. But luckily, we have our own commentary from Paul. Right afterwards, in verses 9 and 10, he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What's Paul's logic here? He's saying, this is God. And God, it's saying that he ascends. But God is highest above all. So how could God ascend if he didn't descend into the form of a man? So we actually see that this is talking about Christ. This is talking about Christ who did descend. This is talking about God, specifically God the Son. And so what do we get from that? We get that Christ conquered. He descended. He descended and he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He conquered. Christ came down. He's just spent three chapters explaining the glories of this and he's calling back to it right now. He's saying that Christ came down He went straight to the cross. He bore the sins of man. He died and he didn't stay dead, but he actually got up out of the grave and ascended on high. And he is seated above everything by the right hand of the Father. He says, this is the Christ who has saved each one of us. And if we look, uh, I, I, I really think it's important to look also back at what he said in chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. The works in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, this is talking about Christ. Christ is sovereign. He is seated above everything. He is Lord. He has conquered and he has used this conquering to supply the Christian's spiritual gifts. It's talked about in verse seven as the grace that was given to each one of us. And Paul describes his own grace that was given to him in chapter three, verse seven and eight, when he talks about his calling to preach the word. If you look at verses 11 and 12, it explains a little bit more about the use of this. 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. He's explaining how Christ's conquering has given the diverse gifts to all of his people. He's specifically talking about leaders here. But we see, we understand from this that the church has been sufficiently supplied, right? Sufficiently supplied. That, that could mean a few things. I, I could say, you know, I'm going to sufficiently supply this, uh, these people who are an orchestra. They don't have any instruments, but I'll sufficiently supply them. I'm going to spend a million dollars and I'm going to buy them 500 trombones. So now we have an orchestra of 500 trombones. That's not going to sound very good, is it? <laughs> is that even in an orchestra? No. So what's the point of 500 trombones in an orchestra? It's going to sound like a big... I don't know. Is that what a trombone sounds like? I imagine. But if I said, I'm going to sufficiently supply this orchestra... I'm going to give them all the strings, the woodwinds, the brass, the percussions. I'm going to give them everything they need. Different things working in harmony. Not doing the exact same things, but working together to create a beautiful symphony. This is how the church is built up. So I don't know if any of you would identify as an apostle or a prophet or even a shepherd. But there's two things I want to say. Firstly, there is a big emphasis on gifts here, especially gifts of leadership. But we also need to remember that 1 Corinthians 12, 7 doesn't stutter when it says that to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I want you to know that God has supplied you personally with spiritual gifts to build up his church, even to build up his youth group, right? But more importantly, more importantly, what I want to get across to you is that by the grace of Christ, you have been supplied pastors, shepherds, leaders. You have Chris. You have Aaron's here, you have Abby, you have Jen, you have Lindsay when she gets back. You have people who love you and desire to spend time with you. They want to meet with you. They do. Meet with them. That is my plea to you. Meet with your leaders. Meet with your shepherds. Meet with your pastors. Let them refine you as iron refines iron. I promise it will be some of the most fruitful conversations you will ever have. Christ has supplied you with them. Okay, so that's great. We have uh, a command to maintain unity. We have sort of the basis of that, the foundation, which we could say is the one God over us all. We have the means even given to us, the diverse strengths given to the church supplied to maintain this. But as C.S. Lewis illustrates, a fleet of ships that works in perfect unity is completely pointless if they end up in Greenland when they wanted to go to the UK. We need to have a goal. Or if you think back to that running illustration, 
about everyone going different ways, even if everyone did go the same way, but it was backwards, still like, what are you accomplishing, right? So we need a goal as well. And Paul gives us one. Look down at verse 13. We're going to read the rest of the passage. He says, so he talks about the means that we are given to equip the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather uh, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, unfortunately, I am not able to say everything that I want to say about this because it is just rich. So I would encourage you to go back over this whole passage and just look at it more in depth. We're just kind of scratching the surface. But, but this, uh, what, so what is the goal? Look at verse 13 again. Until we all attain to the unity of faith. I said that the main point of this passage was to maintain and attain unity. That's kind of weird though. You're like, how am I maintaining something? You just got done saying I already have this. And now you're telling me to attain unity as well. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we are the body of Christ. That is something that you just are by being a Christian. You are born into that. You are the body of Christ. Maintain. But that body must mature. That body must mature. So the goal is to attain unity by maturing as the body of Christ. Look down at verse 14. He describes this a little bit more. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Well, that's what we're growing out of, right? Uh, I, unfortunately, you're going to hear things that just aren't true, right? Even in a Christian setting. Hopefully not here, but you will hear things that just aren't true. And so growing in discernment is part of growing as, as the corporate body of Christ. And so rather than doing that, what does he say? Well, he really does say, rather, in verse 15. Instead of doing that, being deceived, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ. How do we avoid doing that? How do we mature? How do we grow and mature and, and do all these things? We speak truth in love. He's already talked about this. He's already talked about living together in love. He gave us reasons or, or ways to do that in verse two. So what is truth? Well, one of my favorite verses is John seventeen seventeen, when Jesus is praying to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God's very word. So we're lovingly speaking truth to one another. This is to, uh, that, that, that's what's required to mature in every way, to grow up, 
right? So I, I was flipping through an old scrapbook at one point, um, and there's pictures in there, baby pictures of me and my sister, uh, separate pictures, but when we are both babies, right? So she's older than me. So um, when we are both the same age, though, separate pictures, and I just look at those, and I don't, like, you know, I'm sure, like, like okay, I can recognize my niece from other babies, and I'm sure that when I have my own child, Lord willing, I'll be able to recognize her or him from other babies, but I cannot distinguish between my, myself and my sister. When like, I look at our baby pictures, it's unrecognizable to me. So I, I'm looking, and I'm pointing, and, and I'm like, Mom, is this one me? And she's like, yeah, that one is you. That one's you. I can't even recognize myself. It's me, right? Same head, same heart, same brain. More matured, hopefully. But still me. It's the same. So this is kind of what I'm getting at. There's pieces of the body, right? My heart, my lungs, my legs, my arms. Uh, These are uh, unified based on the fact that they are me. They, They have my DNA in them. That is maintained by the very fact that they are me. But my legs move and my arms lift things and my heart pumps and my stomach digests. And so they work together and they grow me. They're unified in a different sense. They're attaining unity by growing me. So I'll be wrapping up quickly. But I want to ask... Can you look back and is it almost hard to recognize yourself based on where you were? I mean, the Christian is, is always growing. If you're not growing, you're dying. But, but, and I want to say that to you personally, but also I want to not lose the emphasis here of the corporate body of Christ together, right? We want to be even just in this youth group, we want to be able to look back as a whole and say, we grew corporately as the body of Christ. We have grown. And we are given the way to do this, to speak truth and love, Paul writes. How do you speak truth? Well, you have to first intake truth, right? Whoever's preaching up here, whether it be me or Chris or whoever, you ought to be listening to what's being said. Right? This is God's word. We're just doing our best to explain it to you. Okay? You ought to be listening to what's being said. You've got to be intaking God's word. You've got to be personally intaking God's word. You ought to be afterwards in small groups. You ought to be telling each other God's word. You ought to be conf- like professing truth at all times. You've got to be intaking truth to speak truth. And this is what leads to growth. That's what, that's what Paul promises here. Speaking truth in love. As if you guys are constantly speaking truth and doing so lovingly, like what we saw in verse 2, you will see growth. You will see maturity, not just internally, but as a, a corporate youth group, as a body of Christ in church. The more you're doing that, the more you grow. And I will also say that if you know, you look back and you don't see a lot of growth, then probably uh, one or the other of those is missing. Uh, 
Truth and love were never meant to be separated. But oftentimes, they are. So, that's a good way to check yourself. So what are we attaining? We're attaining a common embracing of truth. Circulating. We want to grow. We want to grow up into the head. Don't be a bobblehead youth group. Right? We'll conclude. We'll look down at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That would be a great verse to focus on in small groups. But it just again reinforces this idea that if you are a Christian, then you are parts of one body. There is not the brides of Christ, there is the bride of Christ. The Christians make it up. It's not the body like a bionicle, where you can just click off an arm, put on a different one, or click off a head, put on a different one, click off this, put on different ones. It's a body, right? It's a body, joined together, attached together. You have this shared hope. And, and, and lastly, who are you representing? Your head. It's Christ. So I want you to understand that you bear the name of Christ. Bear it well. Maintain and attain this unity by ministering to one another in love. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we move on into small groups and Lord, even just as we approach this next coming week, that you would help us be a body that is faithful to you as our head. Or would you use these high schoolers to build one another up, to refine one another, to love one another, to maintain and attain this unity. And we ask this in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.